Well, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We'll continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. And verse 38, 538. Again, Jesus uses this formula as he does in uh, six different instances here where he uses some illustrations, some life circumstances to portray the, the principle, the, the life-giving spirit behind the law and really the intent of the law. And so he uses this formula. It's a, it's a two, two-phase formula. So he says, first of all, you've heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So where, did, where were they hearing this, that he keeps referring to this? You have heard that it was said. You remember where, where that's coming from? What's that, the law of Hammurabi? Well, maybe. Really through the what? Exodus. Through Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Really through the lens, though, and filtered through the Pharisees and the scribes, huh? the, the legalists of that day. They were hearing it said. They were hearing the law uh, being stated to mean something that had become distorted. And so Jesus comes into this culture that their whole uh, idea of the worship of God has been skewed through a legalistic lens. And so they hear the law spoken, but then they see what the Pharisees do with it and acting it out. And Jesus at one time said, you know, listen to the Pharisees, whatever they tell you, do because they speak for Moses, but don't ever do anything they're doing because they misinterpreted and misapplied the the law. So he says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus goes through this, uh, this litany really of things that might be in a lot of ways offensive to us and he quotes out of the out of the law that uh, this truth was that all uh, restitution was to be equal to what was done in the first place and so the law really came in the, the law was really kind of preventing an over exercise of vengefulness that's what God intended because we are vengeful people aren't we you ever get uh, offended somehow and just really, you know, you start thinking, well, what can I do to get back at that person? How can, what can I do? Can I just be, my, my favorite response is passive aggressive, you know. But, but sometimes we, we, we really want to get back at people, don't we? I remember this lady offended me deeply, attacked me deeply because I was uh, just preaching the Bible and she didn't like that. And so over a period of time, she started to attack me in a lot of different ways. And, and my first response was, well, how can I get back at her? You know, you know, where's a lightning strike, God? You know, just get this thing over with. And, and I really had to go to God because I knew that was, I mean, I knew that was wrong. I knew that was wrong to have that attitude. And I just had to begin to pray over and over and over that God would be merciful to her because I wanted mercy. You're supposed to treat other people the way you want to be treated. Well, I want mercy. I don't want judgment. And so I had to begin to pray that way. And for a long time, I didn't, I didn't have any feelings that even came close to relating to that idea of mercy coming her way. But over a period of time, that, that revenge, that vengeful spirit, you know, began to bleed out of me. And I got past that. But it wasn't, it wasn't the natural response. And the things that Jesus are saying, is saying here, really, you ever seen those books? There have been books, more than one, written about the hard sayings of Jesus. You ever seen the, those titles? The hard, what did Jesus ever say that was easy? 
the things he always he always said things are impossible with men but they're not impossible with God or for those who have faith. So Jesus comes along and he says some stuff that's, that's really difficult. And this is maybe one of the more difficult passages in this fifth chapter. So some things that we need to remember as we read these, because it's easy to kind of take them out of context. And if we just read that one, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek, then, then there would never be any, any kind of uh, justice, would there? If we all, if everybody just sat down and said, okay, just have at me. Just take what you want from me. Beat me to a pulp. You know, run our nation into the ground. If we acted on these words out of context, there would be nothing left, would there? There would be no righteousness remaining. So we have to do it in the context of this. That this, this applies to people. This is being spoken to people. People that act this way are people that are defined in the Beatitudes. It's the people that are living in the kingdom of God, the people that are are pursuing Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. And not only that, but it's really operative within the kingdom household first. It bleeds out of the kingdom naturally, but it's what we're to do as believers. So all of Scripture brings us to the point of looking at Jesus. Here's an interesting thing. One of, my, one of the things I think about often is Jesus in John chapter 5. You know, he's talking to some, some really uh, rigorous religious people. And he said, I know that you're examining the scriptures daily because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. But he said, I want you to understand those scriptures are pointing to me. So everything from Genesis through Malachi is pointing us to Jesus. And then everything flowing away from the Gospels is pointing us back to Jesus. And really it's an exegesis of Jesus. It's an explanation of who he is and what he accomplished. So all of Scripture points us ultimately to Christ Jesus, and and the Holy Spirit points us to Christ Jesus, whom Jesus said would do just that. I'll send you another, a teacher, and he'll bring to your remembrance everything that I've taught you. And and there's things I can't share with you now, but he will show you those things. And so we have all of the Scripture pointing us to the person of Jesus, like Redeemer Church out on Sancti, where it says it's all about Jesus, which is a thing that they got from Martin Luther. It's all about Jesus. Because everything points us to Christ Jesus, who is the life and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when he says these things, he's telling us what the real intent of the law was. And the law was not that, was not that we would, uh, you know, get a black eye from somebody so we'd whack and say, okay, now we're even. That wasn't it, you know. It was so that we wouldn't even take that step. We would overcome evil with good. We would practice something opposite of the world. And uh, it really is opposite of the world, isn't it? Because we're always... You ever notice how defensive you can get? How self-defensive you can get? You know, that's that's just that's our default position in the flesh, isn't it? To be defensive ourselves. But those that serve God are not defensive of themselves. Those that really serve God are offensive in showing good over evil. And so Jesus is saying that the law is is really just kind of keeping us in check. But it's got a deeper, a fuller, a spiritual meaning. So the spirit of the law can be met only by those in Christ Jesus, only people that are born again, only the people that have an encounter with God by faith in Christ Jesus, only they are ever expected to live up to what Jesus is saying. You know, I shared with you one time I was, I was reading in a magazine years ago about a contingent of Methodist bishops and pastors that had gone to Palestine back, I think it was in the 90s, and uh, they were interviewing them, you know, as the as uh, TV people are wont to do. And, and uh, this one bishop said, well, we're just asking that the Palestinians and the Jews would act like Christians. 
Well, first of all, Christians don't act that well lots of times. But, but why would somebody who's not a Christian act like a Christian? It's impossible to act like a Christian to, to do that. It's impossible to turn the other cheek, you know, unless you're a servant of the Most High God who did that for us on the cross to the ultimate, you know, but, but you can't do that in and of the flesh. And if, if you were able to do it maybe just for a little while, then you'd be proud that you did it, and then that just debunks the whole thing, doesn't it? And so it's something that comes out of the spirit of a person that's indwelt by the spirit of Christ Jesus. And so we're all like Nicodemus. We're not going to see the kingdom of God or participate in the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Unless we are born of the spirit of God, these things are impossible. So the sermon's not a, it's not a new code of ethics, and some people have tried to turn it into that. But can you imagine all the books that would have to be written in order to tell us every detail of how to accomplish the will of God? You know, it would there be never ending, and we'd never be able to read it all. This is not a code of ethics, that, but instead these six instances that, uh, that Jesus gives us in this fifth chapter are typical or illustrative of the wisdom of the Spirit behind the law. And so it takes a lot of relationship with Christ Jesus, a lot of prayer, a lot of study to let this get ingrained in us where we begin to make decisions that are in accordance with the spirit of jesus because it is a spiritual thing the law of god's spiritual it's not just letters on a page and so as as howard was saying today whenever we run into something like this that says uh, you know uh, turn the other cheek don't don't seek to knock out the guy's tooth then we have to interpret that with the analogy of scripture we have to let scripture show us what it is that this scripture really means you know so in the law vengefulness and revenge was taken out of the individual's hand. You know, if somebody got their tooth knocked out, he wasn't supposed to go to his neighbor and knock their tooth out. He was supposed to take this to those in authority who could apply the law. They had a hearing, and whether it was Moses or the judges that followed him or the prophets in some cases or the kings, they would make the decisions. Okay, this is what retribution will be taken. This is what measure will be taken to establish justice. But, like I said earlier, you know, we really don't want justice for ourselves, do we? We want the righteousness of God to prevail. We pray that all the time. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But we want the justice of God, His will to be accomplished, His purpose. And so God installs and places people in authority, states, governments, that exercise judgment so that revenge doesn't run the streets. So what was that guy's name? And it doesn't make any difference. But anyway, uh, whenever you have, I, I was going to read this to you. I, I got this. Some of y'all probably had this Global Prayer Digest. So I was reading this week earlier, and this is about uh, the culture in North Africa, particularly in this case uh, with regard to Libya. And so it starts with a quote: "Shall shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter?" Second Samuel two twenty six. Many in Libya could probably identify with Abner's words to Joab. The scripture comes from a time when Israel was in a serious leadership struggle following the death of King Saul. In the same way, following Muammar Gaddafi's death, Libya has been constantly embroiled in a struggle for control among various factions. The result has been exceedingly bitter. For example, the people from the town of Misrata made, in, made internal refugees of the entire town of Tawegra because the Tawegrans took Gaddafi's side in the civil war and were credited with many atrocities in the city. Anyone remotely affiliated with Gaddafi continues to pay the penalty for his abuses of power, even as the cycle continues. The side on top takes revenge on those who abused him, and then the roles eventually switch. 
Forgiveness is not a given, given a high place in Libyan society. If one is wronged, Libyans believe that revenge is the appropriate response. That only leads to newly wronged parties. The results are long-term bitterness in many hearts. From a human perspective, it is hard to imagine a scenario where the sword no longer devours. And so here you have this Libyan. This is just a microcosm of a lot of the earth. But we're going to one-up you. Did you, ever, did you watch that uh, series, uh, The Hatfields and McCoys? It's really good. It's like, like four or six episodes, I think, several years ago. You've got to watch that and get an idea of what revenge does. And that's what God was restricting with the law. You can only break out the guy's tooth if he breaks out your tooth. If he breaks your arm, you can break his arm. But you can't break both arms and cut off his leg. You know, God says you can't do that because there will be annihilation. But there are cultures in the world that this is a, a part of their honor even. And so God has put in place rulers that more or less uh, abide by justice. Our nation's pretty fortunate, really. We've been extremely fortunate. Until recently, it's getting kind of a little out of control, but other cultures are not so fortunate. And so we'll look at that in, the, in a little bit uh, about how we respond and, and who has that authority. So I just tried to break this into four sections for my thinking. One's an explanation of the terms, just uh, revenge, avenge, vengeance, to inflict harm and return for a wrong suffered. And vengeance is the punishment inflicted for a wrong or injury and satisfaction and reprisal. And then I've already told you the law was given to stop the excesses that were being done in the name of justice. So God says that vengeance is his. It's not ours. You know, we have to leave that to him. Well, that's, that's not our natural place to go. We want to get revenge. But God says, no. Revenge, vengeance is mine, and God is a God of vengeance, so we can trust that he will do what's proper and what's right. So, okay, if we're, if we're free to pray for judgment, this is, a, this is an interesting thing because, uh, you know, you're reading the Psalms. One of the Psalms that's really kind of violent is uh, Psalm 137, and uh, the people are talking about how, how happy will be those that dash their enemies' heads, their children's heads against the rocks. You remember reading that? That's pretty brutal, isn't it? Well, this is going to be a happy time, you know, bashing these kids' brains out on rocks. But there is a place where we can pray for God's vengeance. Remember the souls in Revelation chapter 6 that are under the altar? And they're crying out, Oh God, how long before you avenge the blood of your holy ones? So there is a place to, to desire the justice of God, the judgment of God, but we do that in prayer. We cast that upon God. We, we release that to God. God, we're not the ones who are going to take that kind of revenge we're not the ones who are going to do that but you will do it to those you know that needs to be done to in your time but when will it happen and so we're praying for that your kingdom come your will be done even so come quickly lord jesus it changes our sensitivities to what we desire and what we pray for god come and set things right set things right that there's no more abortion there's no more revenge there's no more lust there's no more greed there's no more hate god your kingdom come your will be done we're praying that but for that to happen there's going to come tremendous vengeance on those who are evil and so part of our prayer is the realization that god's going to judge rightly it's it's like with uh, abraham when god comes by with the, the angels and he's on his way you know to sodom and gomorrah and abraham pleads with him you know you know leave the city if there's just a few righteous Will not the God of all the earth do what is right? And yes, he will. He will do what is right. But if we take it into our hands, we won't do what's right. 
Because we don't have that. Not only have we not been given that authority, but we don't see like God sees. We're not righteous like God is righteous and he's judging. So in this age, we're free to pray for God's judgment. And the Psalms give us a lot of uh, opportunity to do that as we pray through the Psalms, that God's righteousness will prevail. But God has reserved this vengeance for himself. So we're in this living in this time. I want to read this to you out of uh, Isaiah 61 and 63. This one out of 61 is extremely familiar because Jesus uses it as his vision statement. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. So that's an interesting thing that Jesus leaves that off because when he came, it's an offer of mercy. And in this age, mercy is offered over and over through the preaching of the gospel. Every time that the gospel is heard, every time that God testifies to his son Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of his saints, he's offering mercy. But the flip side of that, there's going to be vengeance on those who refuse to receive. So those who believe, there's mercy. To those who disbelieve, who are unbelieving, what they'll receive in the end is vengeance, the vengeance of God. But Jesus had set the stage for the reality that his ministry was about finding a place for mercy by dying in the place, taking the wrath and the condemnation of his father upon himself in order to set us free from that so that we could receive mercy. But there's coming a time when the day of the vengeance of God will arrive. And so in 63, first few verses of chapter 63, speak about that. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I get my page turned here. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And that's some hard reading, isn't it? Hard consideration. But that's really a lot of what's going on in the book of Revelation. All these judgments, these bowls of wrath. God is coming to the day of vengeance. The day of mercy will be over, and the day of vengeance comes. And so we're in this meantime, we're portraying what? We're portraying the mercy of God. We have to speak about the vengeance, but we're portraying the mercy. We're offering an olive branch constantly. This is what Paul says in Romans, you know, that that as as much as possible with ourselves, we're to be at peace with all people. We're always to be holding out an olive branch in the name of Jesus. But not everybody receives that olive branch. But we don't take vengeance on those people. We're not like the Muslims who say, here's Allah, he's the greatest, he's the greatest, take him. No, we don't want him. (laughs) That's not our job. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is a God of mercy offering himself freely in Christ Jesus through his people, through the church. And his desire is that people would receive what he's offering in mercy. But to those who refuse it, condemnation only will rest upon them. And and God will take that vengeance in his time and in his way because his son has been rejected. So God reserves that vengeance for himself. And then we have this example. There's a great example. David's a great example. So in Chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, you remember this story about where David's got his 600 guys, and that was a motley crew of people, man. They were 
dissatisfied and in debt and you know they they weren't a great gang to hang with but they sure didn't want what was going on in Saul's kingdom and so they're traveling with David as he runs from Saul through the wilderness and they come to Paran and there's this guy in Paran named Nabal anybody ever have a grandson named Nabal Anyway, they come to this guy, and he's a very wealthy man. He's got a lot of sheep, a lot of goats, and he's got all these herdsmen out there. And David's guys have been hanging around kind of the perimeter of his herds, really giving some protection from marauders, you know, and, and not taking advantage of them anyway. And uh, they're running out of supplies. So he sends a note. He says, listen, we've been with your shepherds. Things have been going good out here, but we're really in need because you give us a little supply. And he just says, huh? Why would I give a rebel anything? Forget that. So David gets word back from his guys that, hey, this guy's not going to help us out at all. We're stuck out here. And he says, okay, everybody saddle up. We're going. And so they, they saddle up and they get ready to go. Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, who is a good woman. I don't know why she, she must have not been a Christian. She's got married. Anyway, she got saved, and she, her heart was turned towards God, and she said, man, my husband is a fool, which is what Nabal means. That's why you don't name your kids Nabal. <laughs> you might call them Nabal, but Jesus said don't do that either. But anyway, so she gets a bunch of raisin cakes. What is a raisin cake? I don't even like raisins. Anyway, that used to be a feast, I guess. So she gets all these donkeys loaded with raisin cakes and grains, and she goes over there to make an apology for her husband. She gets there, and David's really, you know, their wrath's getting up. They're going to take vengeance for themselves. And she says, don't save by your own hand. Let God do the saving. And he listens to her, and she says, thank you for coming, because I was going to take this into my own hands. You know, David was really good about not taking things into his hands, wasn't he? Oftentimes, he would let Saul go when he had him. He had him dead to rights. But he said, I can't touch the Lord's anointing. Only God can remove him. Only God can take vengeance on those he's angry with. And so we're to have that heart of David. But in this particular case, it just got, got overwhelming and weight on him, you know. And so the interesting thing is, the Bible says in Psalm 37, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't be worried about the wicked. Don't be worried about those who are increasing in their wickedness. Don't worry about that. Their end is coming. You read that in Psalm 37. Well, you know what Abigail's name means? It means delight. I'm sure that David wrote this psalm out of that experience. Take delight in the Lord. And Abigail became his wife, and Nabal died of a stroke. God took him in a stroke. He got God have the last say, and God did what was right by Nabal, but he also did what was right by David. He gave him the desire of his heart because he delighted in the Lord God. So we have this example in David. We have this example in Joseph, who had every right to take vengeance on his brothers, but he said, you might have intended this for evil. God intended it for good, and all is forgiven. We have this example in Moses, who put up with these stiff-necked people, you know, like us, for 40 years in the wilderness. Even his own sister, his brother, attacked him and his authority. He had men coming at him all the time. And he, he, where he went was went to prayer. He said, God, you've got, you got to deliver me. I can't deliver myself. You know, so this is to be our attitude, is to turn the other cheek. Now, the interesting thing is this, is, this is what commentators pretty much universally agreed on. Does anybody want to be an example? I can slap you on the cheek. But, but they said, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, well, that would be a backhand, wouldn't it? It's an insult. It's an insult. Turn the left cheek also. Don't retaliate. Don't let it escalate. Overcome evil with good. Isn't that an amazing thing to do? That, that's, that's not easy to do, is it? Even with the Spirit of Jesus in us, that's not easy to do. 
But it's possible because God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus, and he's given us his spirit. So we can respond out of the spirit of Jesus. But we've got to be slow to anger, don't we? We've got to think in terms of what Jesus has accomplished when he not only turned his cheek, but he gave his beard to be pulled out, his back to be beaten, his body to be crucified. We have to think in the whole context of what Jesus has accomplished in fulfilling the law and the prophets. We have to be a mindful people, don't we? So if we're not, then we end up taking vengeance. We end up punching somebody. So you have this example of these, these people in, in Scripture that, that really did more than turn the other cheek. Jesus in particular. But uh, if, we, if we belong to Jesus, then we learn to do this. So he goes on from there and he says, uh, says not only turning the cheek, he says, don't resist evil except for governments. Governments have that responsibility, that charge to resist evil, to punish evil even. If anyone would take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So if someone has a, a need, then we are able to give more than they ask for. We're to be a, a generous people. Really, these few verses come down to living beyond ourselves, not even living for ourselves. I had a friend, heard him preaching one time, and he said, you know, a slave is the freest person, a voluntary slave is the freest person in the world because they've given up all of their rights voluntarily. So their rights can't be trampled on. We'd like to have our rights all the time, wouldn't we? We'd like to get a hold of our rights. We'd like to exercise our rights. But if we're truly slaves of the Most High God, we've given our rights to Him. And He has the freedom to call and to instruct and to tell us exactly how to function in life. And this is what He says. Be more than generous. You know, go, go an extra mile. The, evidently, the Romans had this deal when, whenever they conquered a nation. This was, was an operation in Palestine that when they conquered the Jews, if a soldier came along and they were having to do some duty or something, and they said, you've got to help us. Drop all your job. Do everything, do everything that you need to do right now, but come with us. You've got to give us some volunteer labor. And they were to go. Maybe they ask you to go, you've got to help us carry this load a mile. Then do it two miles. Go two miles. Show them that you're different than those in the world. Show them that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of principles are totally contrary to the thinking of this age. And so we have all these things that uh, are pretty much agreed on by theologians, you know, that are poured over these things that come out of that culture. But we have these tremendous examples also of... of uh, people that have shown this, even under the law in the Old Testament. So we have this exhortation. And if you turn over to Romans chapter 12, we'll read through this, and you'll see that this vengeance that God exercises in this age, His punishment, His justice, He exercises through governments and those that have been placed in authority. And in Romans chapter 12, you have this famous statement, you know, that we're to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship. And he goes on to the specifics of what that worship looks like, how it's flavored in verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Then he comes to really a commentary on these few verses out of Matthew 5 we've been looking at. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Then he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then, uh, let's see if I can find the verse here. Verse, verse 4 says, uh, the government, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. So there's a place for vengeance, even in this age, but it has to be done by the proper authorities, not by individuals. And so the law restricted this and transferred it over to those who were in that authority, who had the authority of judges or prophets or kings, leaders in the culture. And that, that is uh, the exhortation that we have to live humbly. You know, if you, if you read through the first part of Romans chapter 12, it says really to assess yourself according to the gifts that you've been given. To live humbly. Don't consider yourself, you know, more highly than you ought to. Don't consider yourself with no worth. But take yourself as how God has gifted you and apply, apply yourself in those ways. So the expectation we have if we leave vengeance to God is really one of mercy. Because blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a couple of places, but the best one, I think, is uh, James chapter 5. And I want to read that to you. So in James chapter 5, the apostle says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So there's a, there's a warning of the vengeance to come. And in verse 7, it says to those who are suffering under present circumstances, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord's at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so we have this expectation when we live according to the Sermon on the Mount, according to the principles that Jesus fulfilled in the Law and the Prophets, when we live that way, we have this great anticipation of this mercy yet to come. Mercy now and mercy yet to come. Because God is merciful to those who have yielded to Him, to those who have come to Him, who submit to Him, who walk with Him in the, in the beauty of His holiness. So in the meantime, uh, we're to be people that deny the flesh and walk in the Spirit. We take up our cross daily. We deny ourselves. We put that life in the past because we're new creations. The old passed away. The new has come. And so we live that way day after day after day, mindful of the fact that Jesus did that. And we have this great example, as well as a calling, that he didn't consider it something great to hold himself equal to God, but he submitted to his Father. And he took the form of a servant. And so, likewise, we come to serve not to lord it over, not to master, not to get revenge, not to get our way, but to be a servant of the Most High God who showed exactly what it is He's called us to in the person of Christ Jesus who redeemed us and then becomes a model for us.
and gives us the Spirit of God to follow after him. So these uh, scriptures are very difficult, but they're not impossible because the Spirit of God dwells in every son and daughter that he's called. And so we, we act out of that power, out of that life. So I'm going to quit there because I know there's refreshments in the Great Hall, but uh, let's pray. If there's a couple of questions, we take some questions and we'll, we'll go eat a muffin. Father, we do bless you, God, that uh, you've done everything for us, God. You've accomplished every good thing for our sake and for your name's sake. And God, as you lead us in life, you lead us in, in the victory, you lead us in the triumph that's in Christ Jesus in all things. Father, we pray that we might see that more clearly, understand that more deeply, God, that it would be the very fiber of who we are, what we do. God, that you would, again, not only remind us, but empower us. God, that we might have the strength of your Spirit to know with all the saints what is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of your love, to be filled up with the fullness of who you are, God, that you would be known. We'd be satisfied in that. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Anybody have comments or questions?